Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's an honor and pleasure to have you here with me today. In this podcast, I endeavor to explore what I refer to as a full-spectrum spirituality. That is an approach to life and the spiritual quest that includes the light aspects of our being, meaning the, the gloriously pleasant, beautiful, joyful aspects of our being, and the shadow side of our being, the, the kind of the shameful, repressed, uh, un, un, unsavory aspects of our being, if you will. Okay, so the, the podcast tries to explore how we can practice in a way that unifies these, integrates these, and harmonizes all aspects of ourselves. And in this episode, I explore a question that came in from a, a member of our practice community um, that Terry and I run. And uh, the question regards the difficult energies of practice that the Buddha referred to as the hindrances. And the, the, the person that's raising the question is wondering, with, with practice or even with enlightenment, when we, we attain a deeper stage of realization or a depth of being, uh, with practice or with enlightenment, do the hindrances, do the challenges simply go away? Or do they continue to arise and... Uh, even though they continue to arise, we have, through practice, we have new ways of being with them in the way that, that they don't condition our experience or they don't influence us to the same degree that they did before. And I really love this question. I think it gets to the heart of what development on the path looks like. And as I say here, I don't claim to have the final answers or the absolute answers. I just um, continue to reflect on and engage with the question. I think that can bring a real uh, interesting way of looking into your experience when you practice. So I hope um, the reflections I give today on the yin and yang heart are a value and a benefit to you. And if you do find you enjoy these podcasts, if you enjoy these talks, if you enjoy the conversations I have here, and if you're curious about yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, and specifically curious about how those three practices work together in a synergistic way to... Um, harness and channel your energy to support your own capacity for awakening, please check out our, our online practice community. We call it the Riverbird Sangha, and uh, we have a very flexible uh, membership structure so that whatever your means, you're able to participate if you're interested. And we just love working with folks with these arts of qigong, yin yoga, and meditation, it's particularly to see how the, these various practices support each other and really lead to very um, palpable and, and, and important transformations in people's lives um, in the everyday. So this isn't about going to a monastery. This is about waking up in the everydayness of your ordinary life. So if you'd like to practice with me and Terry, do check that out online. There's a link for you in the show notes. We really appreciate your support for the work we do and for the podcast, and just want to wholeheartedly thank you in advance for that support. So without further ado, today's talk, the yin and yang heart. Um, as some of you know, uh, um, I've, Terry and I, primarily me, she's been helping out, Terry's been helping out the Qigong, um, but I've been teaching a, a, an eight-week meditation training um, as part of our school. And um, the theme is compassion. And uh, inevitably, uh, when I teach anything about meditation, I, I feel um, 
that I would be doing a disservice to everybody if I didn't speak about the challenging mind states, the, the challenging energies of mind and heart that, that make practice difficult, that people usually encounter when they start meditating. Um, and these, I think many of you know, these, these, these mind states are called the hindrances. Um, they tend to be uh, framed as a problem when they arise, they, they tend to be framed as things that we are trying to get past or get away from when we think about developing greater stillness, greater peacefulness within, greater inner quietude. We tend to see these, these mind states as obstacles on our path to peace. And um, if you're like me, you, you try to get around them or get away from them. And um, I'll speak towards the end of this reflection on um, kind of my practical approach to working with these energies. Um, but there was a question that came up in the training uh, from a Sangha member. And I thought I would begin with the, her, her question and, and reflect on that a little bit and then um, take us into a meditation from there. And this will relate back to some of the themes that we've heard elsewhere, you know, in prior weeks and prior sessions. Um, but the question began with uh, the student saying that she had was reading Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Transformation and Healing, where he mentions a time in practice. So he mentions that there's the potential in practice for a time to be when all the hindrances would disappear. Doesn't that sound nice? Like you sit down and you get to a stage in your practice where you sit down and there's no hankering, like no, there's no uh, craving for something else to happen. There's no frustration with what is going on in your, in your experience. There's just sort of a, a quietude or a peacefulness without this in, uh, kind of ever knocking intrusion into our, our, our quietude. Um, so she reflects, she says, I guess that would, that, this, that, that might be part of being fully enlightened that with full enlightenment, the hindrances no longer arise, they disappear, the difficulties disappear. But she asks, she says, will they all go away at some point? Or will they just always need to be understood and befriended as they were always part of our experience? And um, I don't know if the question, the person who raised this question is aware of this, but this is actually a very um, kind of philosophically minded question that appears in a variety of traditions in Buddhism. And I think in yoga too, which is essentially what is the status of an, of an enlightened individual? Like what, what is there as the experience of an enlightened individual like, are they, completely freed of disturbances, meaning the disturbances no longer arise and no longer appear in their thought stream, um, which isn't to say they're detached and indifferent. They're just, they're no longer experiencing self-centered desire, self-centered dislike, self-centered um, craving, et cetera. Um, so do, the, do these no longer appear? Or um, are they still appearing? Do they still arise in your experience with practice, but they no longer um, hook us or hook you or hook me and, and kind of when we get hooked by them, they tend to drive how we behave. 
So when we're really seized by a desire, you know, we find ourselves reaching for something to eat or something to drink or something to watch, for example, just as a, as a, as a minor example. Um, so when these, when these mind states are, are kind of active, we tend, they, can, they tend to kind of push us around. Um, and the challenge with meditation often is that when we sit down, as I often try to say, the simplicity of the structure of sitting where we, 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 we agree with ourselves to sit still for a set period of time, not to uh, become statuesque, but it's the condition of committing to stillness or relative stillness that then reflects back to us the impulses to get away from stillness, which is essentially the energy of the, of the hindrances. So um, I, I love the question, will they all go away? Will they stop arising? Will they disappear? Or will they continue to arise? And we just relate to them differently. And um, when I answered this question in the, in the training, I said, for me, that question is to be determined <laughs> in the sense that um, I, I can't claim whether I know or not whether they stop appearing because they, they do appear for me. These energies continue to appear for me. Um, and so I, I can't personally make a, make a, validate the claim that they, like Thich Nhat Hanh was making, that they stop appearing. That said, I have encountered personally individuals who I would say seem, having observed their behavior, observed the way they speak, the way, observed the way they comport themselves. I've, I've met people who certainly seem to be far less under the influence of the hindrances. And, um, and one of my teachers, Jack Engler, I would say, uh, in, in short, he, he spent quite a bit of his dissertation studying individuals who are designated by their Asian teachers to have attained certain stages in awakening. And um, through psychological, various forms of psychological testing, he was able to correlate with that their, their level of attainment did seem to line up with less of certain kinds of psychological um, conditions in their mind, like the, the kind of self-centered grasping or the struggling or the even the view of being a separate self, that, the, that these things do radically change at, at these various identified signposts in this particular tradition for levels of, or stages of awakening. But I also, um, I remember hearing about a, a monk in the Thai forest tradition that I had practiced with for a while. And the story was that the monk had been doing a, a, a sacred pilgrimage by walking through India, through stretches of India by foot. And he was accompanied only by one uh, attendant, meaning there was one person who was not a monk, an, a lay person, a non-monastic who handled the money and, and helped carry a few things along the journey. But the two of them pilgrimaged together through India. And I remember hearing that at one point in their journey, and this is, you know, within the last few decades, uh, this monk is still alive. Um, but along their journey, they were kind of uh, overtaken by a, a group of, of bandits. That's the way it was described in the story. So people, uh, men with machetes uh, came and tried to 
take their things and um, the lay practitioner, as I heard the story, uh, took his things and ran, tried to run, run for cover. But the monastic, uh, whose name is uh, Ajahn Suchito, claimed that the story is that he, instead of running and instead of fighting, he kneeled down, handed over his things. And, and I'm not advocating this as like what all any of us need to do. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vignette illustrative of something, I think. But he kneeled down and just drew an X on the top of his bald head, a shaven head. Saying, if you're going to use your ax, your hatchet, your machete, that's where to hit me. And when I heard that, I thought, that's an extraordinary story. Uh, you know, I know I'm in no way knowledge that that's how I would be. I mean, I would be running my as fast as I could, or if I had to probably get into a physical altercation of some sort. But I had the chance uh, to actually uh, drive this particular monk to and from the airport to the retreat center in Massachusetts a couple of times. Um, and at one, one point, I broached the the story, I broached the topic with him. I said, I don't know if this is within your monastic um, rules and of, of conduct to talk about things like this, because monks in, in this tradition are really discouraged from speaking personally about themselves. Um, <clears throat> but I said, I'm really curious, did that story in India really happen? And there was a pause. And he's also a very... Um, dry and uh, sort of stolid, quiet uh, monk from England. He's originally English. So there was, there was a pause and he just said, yup. <laughs> he, he didn't go on beyond that. Um, so when I hear that kind of a story, to me that, that signals that there are beings out there who have walked far enough, enough along this path that these sort of patterns of mind known as the hindrances either, and I, this gets back to the original question, they either are arrived, they're, they're present, but they no longer influence the individual's behavior or, in, or and I would say influence people's perception of things that, that would then condition their behavior, or they simply don't arise anymore. But again, that's not my experience. I mean, I don't know if it's that, if that's your experience. So what my experience has been is, and this actually comes back to my, what really got me into the, into the Dharma, what got me, and I would say hooked me, on the Buddha Dharma path, which is that I had been doing a bunch of yoga from sort of early to mid nineties and doing, getting into yoga forms of meditation. But in 2001, um, when I was in graduate school, a friend invited me to, uh, to go on a silent meditation retreat with him. And I know some of you know this story and as retreats go, it, like all retreats, they have their ups and downs. But I noticed something 
that utterly blew my mind on that retreat, which was that after just applying the practice for about, or, or applying myself to the practice for three days or so, and I, and I did not have a serious med, I would not say I had a very deep meditation practice prior to this retreat. Yes, I practiced yoga. Yes, I did maybe like 20, 30 minutes of meditation a day, but I didn't feel like I had any, you know, great powers of awareness or concentration or anything. But while on this retreat, after just following a simple instruction to be aware of what was arising moment to moment, that was it, really. That was the core instruction, just to be aware. This is mindfulness, to be aware of what's arising moment by moment. And that includes being aware of what the sensations are, the body, being aware of what food tastes like, being aware of what you know, uh, the breeze on your face feels like being aware of what you're thinking about and being aware of these challenging mind states, just noticing them when they're present moment by moment. And Dan Harris, the, um, the newscaster and mindfulness evangelist now, the, the, the guy behind 10% Happier, he described something similar. I remember his, his description on his first retreat, he said, for the first three days, he said it felt like he was being pulled by, he was, felt like he was being, he was trying to water ski and uh, he couldn't get up on the skis. <laughs> so he's holding on to the, the little uh, the, the, the piece of uh, pole or uh, tubing that you hold on to to, to, to to water ski. And he's holding on to that, not up on the skis, being dragged face first through the water. And I think that's a kind of an accurate description of what it's like to feel the full brunt of the energy of the hindrances when you go into a retreat experience where, you're, where your capacity for distraction is limited to just what's happening. <laughs> In other words, the capacity to, be, to, to, be, uh, to, to distract yourself with some other escape like to go into your phone or go into the refrigerator or, I mean, there's only so many cups of tea on a retreat that you can make. There's only so many times you can walk around the block before you just kind of surrender to the form of just sitting and walking. But within the simplicity of that form, it can feel like you're being dragged by a motorboat face first. Um, when the hindrances are really active, it can feel like you're in a, in a, um, you know, in a, in a dry machine getting just, just on tumble dry, like getting spun around and just getting whacked from all sides. But the way Dan Harris described it, he said, you know, something happened for him on this third, fourth, whenever, whatever day it was, where he suddenly felt like it, he was up on his skis and there was this effortless balance that he didn't know where that came from, but there he was up on his skis being, you know, successfully water skiing. And, and for me, you know, to echo that experience, having three to four days of hell within the hindrances, it was as though something in my mind turned off. And it was essentially the endless thinking through which the energy of these hindrances were voicing themselves. And I felt there was an, I, I recognized, I, and I couldn't say I created it because that the, the, the attempt to try to create that stillness 
was part of what was you know feeling creating the tumble dryer feel of like trying to get it and then not getting it and trying harder and getting frustrated but there was almost something in me that completely let go or gave up trying for a while and there was a quietude that was a incredibly significant but b self it was self-sustaining meaning and and, there's, and so, so I kind of plant a flag in my life around this this retreat because it was the first time in my life where a I experienced myself with that level of inner quietude for a, for a sustained period of time for a period of several days where sure there were there were some highs and lows still uh, you know after that period but in general whatever was happening was happening if I was sitting I was sitting if I was walking I was walking but my mind felt light, supple, fluid with what was happening. And there just wasn't the hard edges of resistance and struggle that had marked and defined my earlier experience on the retreat. And it was such a contrast because the conditions were identical. Meaning the first three days of the retreat were the exact same schedule of simplistic monotony, (laughs) sitting and walking with a few meals, same exact schedule, same exact people, same exact teacher, same exact conditions in almost every respect, except the one thing that changed was that by day three or four, the hindrances were no longer bothering me. They weren't, they weren't appearing. And yes, to the question that was raised at the beginning from the student, I um, <laughs> foolishly thought for a moment, oh, I've, I've arrived. I've arrived. This is, this is, uh, I'm changed. Something, this is the path. This is, this is clearly different. I've arrived. The hindrances will no longer bother me. They've been overcome. Now that, that delusion lasted until I got on the highway going home. And that's the case for most people. You know, someone cuts you off, you go, you get, you go to pick up a coffee and then someone's too slow or someone, you know, does something that you'd perceive as rude or in, uncivil. And then suddenly the hindrances are right there again. And, and I boomeranged. This is, this is going to get to the, the, the pragmatics around methodology of how I try to emphasize practice. But at the time, I should say, I was practicing doing a practice where I was trying to be mindful of my breath at the, at the nostrils. So that was the primary practice I did. I would sit and I would count my breath at my nostrils from one to 10 and just repeat one to 10 and over, do that over and over again. And while practicing like that, if I notice my mind wandering to thinking, if I notice my mind wandering to thinking, or if I noticed like a difficult energy come up, I would label it and name it. So this is anger. This is judgment. This is craving. This is restlessness. I'd label it and then return immediately to my breath. But I do that on retreat and get successful and get my mind quiet. But then I go off retreat. And again, like as soon as I hit the highway, that quietude was gone. And I just thought, okay, I need more practice. I just need to do this more. I need to keep these things 
like these difficult energies out of my mind for a long enough period of time. And then they'll then like Thich Nhat Hanh is saying here, they, they'll stop arising. But that never really happened. And I did, I'd say over a dozen retreats, at least before I started to think that maybe there's a different way of practicing. <laughs> maybe the fact that these, these energies keep coming up when I get off retreat, maybe they need a little bit more attention. And still working within the same system, meaning the same early Buddhist system, still working with teachers from that tradition, I encountered some teachers who rather than talking about the hindrances and the difficulties on the fourth day, they would start speaking about them on the first day. And their suggestion was, to really become in some ways, you know, I, I studied a little bit of anthropology in college and, and I think they were encouraging this kind of an attitude to be a curious anthropologist about the nature of these own energies within yourself. So rather than kind of playing a game, what I refer to as spiritual hot potato, where you're sitting there, something difficult comes up, you name it, drop it and come back to something better. So that when the music stops, you're not caught there sitting with, when the bell rings, <laughs> the meditation bell rings, you're not sitting there uh, stewing in desire, like, oh, my whole meditation was just about selfish, senseless self-desire, whatever, like, you know, um, rather than that, the teachers really encouraged a, a warm curiosity towards these energies. And they framed it that these energies, like, as I've been trying to share with you, aren't um, themselves the enemy. They are only, in a sense, problematic to the degree that we're not aware of them. So when they operate unconsciously without our mindfulness light on, that's when they tend to condition difficulty in our lives. So when I really started to think about um, different ways of practicing, and I tried to think when, uh, and, and, bar, and I tried to borrow approaches and, and kind of the functional approach to yoga that yin, that yin yoga was uh, speaking to, I started to think that there's a way that the structure of yin yoga can apply to meditation as well. So that just as yin yoga, we, we're not trying to create and force something specific to happen, like particularly around alignment and getting a, a perfect alignment or engaging the muscles in a pose. In yin, we, we come to you know, gentle shapes and relax and just allow the gentle forces of the pose to work upon us. So there's a, there's, it's, yin yoga is... Um, the whole process unfolds through an attitude of receptivity and care. And so I tried to think that when I, when I really internalized the yin yoga practice on a physical level, I, I, I started to see that so much of my meditation life and so much of the meditative instructions that I had received were essentially yang instructions. They're saying, do this. When that happens, do that. 
Focus on here. When your mind wanders, come back. Let it go and come back. So there was this energy of control, of striving. And while I appreciated tools from the Yang Yoga or the, or the Yang Meditation Schools, um, I started to find that I was getting uh, more into my heart and more uh, open to the fullness of my being by not trying to control my mind with meditative techniques, but just opening to my experience with receptivity. And so what happens when we do that, when we bring receptivity into our meditation journey, we allow the, the various forms of thoughts and feelings that tend to agitate us in daily life. We allow those into our practice. And rather than letting them go, rather than trying to stop them, rather than interrupting them, rather than bringing your awareness back to something more spiritual, like bringing your attention back to the mantra or the breath, which you can do, of course, you can, you can definitely uh, play that way. You can, you can make those decisions if it's helpful. But as a general suggestion, I think it's, um, I would say, to me, it seems more skillful to be receptive to these energies and to allow them to go on while you're sitting to not try to cut them off. And that, that can feel a little bit overwhelming at times. And that's where if it does get overwhelming, we need to have the skillfulness to back off or play our edge with it. But by being willing to let things go on more, um, there's a way that through getting to know the challenge, it's in contact, it's by, it's by virtue of being in contact with a challenge that, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, it's like our being, your being, my being, when we contact the challenge, our being starts to creatively develop and grow a capacity to be with that challenge. It doesn't necessarily repress the challenge, it doesn't deny the challenge, but by being in contact with it in the meditation, we allow our minds to explore it, to understand it more, and to, in a sense, grow, grow within the challenge. And, and that kind of dovetails back to the story, the Cherokee story that I shared last week about two wolves in the heart, um, where you know a, a, a Cherokee elder is sharing a, a life lesson with his grandson saying in in our hearts there's a battle going on and he compares the battle between the battle between a good wolf and a bad wolf and the bad wolf the evil wolf is is you know has attributes of anger jealousy sorrow regret greed arrogance all of these qualities sound like what are described in buddhism as the hindrances and the the the, the good wolf is a wolf of joy and peace and love and hope and serenity, lots of good qualities. So the, the, the Cherokee elder says to his grandson, when the grandson asks which one wins, the, the elder says, the one I feed. And 
I think to, again, as I try to reflect last week, I think that's a, a helpful reflection maybe towards a, a child. But if we, uh, if we essentially try to starve what we perceive in ourselves that we don't like, if we try to starve the parts of ourselves that uh, we're not so proud of or, or um, that we don't feel that the, the parts align with who we want to be, that creates cognitive dissonance. That starving, that, that, that attempt to starve in a way often is coming from one of the energies of aversion itself. There's, a, there's not a kindness towards that energy. There's, there's, there's a harshness. And... Um, you know, during the Q&A last week, or the, the discussion, I should say, during the discussion, um, John from the, from the Sangha said that he, he, he recognizes the need for the bad wolf in order to understand the good wolf. And he, he made the comment that it's like these, 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 the good wolf and the bad wolf are, are like the yin and yang within the heart. And I think that's a really important reflection that he raised and that I want to underline that it really is the, you know, as they say in India with no mud, no Lotus, it is within the challenge. It's through opening to the challenges within us that, and, and to see what within us is contributing. And I'm, I'm choosing that word carefully what within us is contributing to the challenge. I'm not saying we're the sole cause of challenge in our life, but that would be too, I think, too simplistic or too reductionistic. But the, I think the, the question the Buddha is asking us again and again and again is what within us is contributing to our, our resistance or struggle or fight or frustration with what's happening? And I think, as was reflected, when we open through receptivity to these challenges, we do start to find, this is what I've been hearing from students, from reflections, and I, I notice it in my own practice, that when we really allow ourselves to be touched by the challenge, to the difficulty, to the pain, that that direct contact, the sense, it, it, it opens up a sensitivity in the heart, which is in a way like the, the, the rich soil through which the qualities, of the, the positive qualities of our heart can grow. So I don't know what to call this talk. I'm thinking it's like the yin and yang of the heart, but maybe there is a day when the hindrances stop arising. But until that day arrives, all we can do is work with them wisely and compassionately, which is one, to see them clearly, to see when they're present, to see when they're absent. And that's, and that's something I want you to, as a question, I want you to drop into your meditation tonight. So when you're sitting and you're resting with your body, feeling your perch for a moment or two, allowing your mind 
and heart to be receptive to what's unfolding. Be with what comes up, allow it to flow in, allow it to, to do its thing, allow it to pass. And when, specifically when there's a, like a, you, you'll, I think you all know this, but when, when there's a, like a flag that goes off in your, in your being or a flare, of something's not right here. And that could be any variety of things. It could be like something not right in your body, doesn't feel right in your mind, something you disagreement with me or somebody else or whatever it is. There's sort of some kind of conflict. Use the conflict as an opportunity to get to know it more. Like, what is this? What's, what's, what's driving here? What is, what is my hope right now? What is my wish right now? And those, those kinds of questions often help reveal the direction of the energy that's coming up. I want, I want to know what that means, or I want to know what that, that, that state is. I, I want to know what he meant by that. The mind is wanting, and that, that can create some conflict, or I disagree with that. So a, a, a form of aversion, of disagreement can arise. And these are all fine things to have in your practice. I'm not saying to not have them. What I'm asking you to notice is, Notice what it's like when you're aware that they're there. And also check in from time to time and notice what it's like when they're absent. Oftentimes, they, when we struggle with them, that adds extra fuel to their, to their, to their existence. And when we, we meet them with non-resistance and open sort of open-hearted curiosity and receptivity that tends, not always, but it tends to, with, it tends not to add more fuel. They, they, they still may, they burn on the fuel that they came in with, but with time we may see that they fade and pass. And that is a very important process to see. That's a very important occurrence to notice. It's important to notice anything changing. But particularly with these difficulties, I think it can be very illustrative in terms of the nature of stillness to be present when a challenge departs. So the instructions really are just be, you know, patiently sit and watch your experience with receptivity. Notice when, and I'm quoting the Buddha here and from a sutta, notice when there's a hindrance or challenge present and notice when it's absent. And the, the, for me, the key to noticing when it's absent is, it's, it's a hard thing to notice when it's absent because it doesn't cap, the, the absence doesn't capture your attention, right? I know I've quoted this one before, but Thich Nhat Hanh says, we don't notice the toothache that's healed. When the toothache is gone, we don't notice it anymore. So when the hindrance is absent, it's, it's, it's a, it doesn't grab our attention quite as much. But if you, several, as several of my teachers have suggested, as if you stay with something and just watch it, watch it objectively as you can, either it will change and kind of break up while you're watching it, or it may do its thing for a while and then disappear or fade out of your, off your radar. And it's, when it's fading away, that's when you can really do a comparison and contrast to what it's like when it's there and when it's not there. And it's, and it's really when things 
fade in our experience or a pass away is the technical phrase you hear in Burma. When things pass away, when we're watching them and they fade, it's in those moments that I think we can get real glimpses in, into, glimpses into the quietude of the mind, the listening quietude of the mind that's present to the changing conditions that we're noticing. So, you know, as a quick example, this one often is, is, is often shared is, let's say your, your meditation space is not too far away from your kitchen. And, you know, you're practicing and you're aware of your body, you're aware of kind of garden variety thinking, you're aware of all these things. And then all of a sudden, the, you notice the refrigerator turns off. And there's a level of quiet that reveals itself that you weren't aware of because A, your mind was sort of hooked by other, all these other things and you weren't even paying attention to the sound of the, of the refrigerator. But when it changes, when that condition of the sound of the refrigerator changes, there's a, a stillness that, are, that appears. And that's what it's like when we, we notice things changing in our experience, when, when we're meditating, when things change and we stay with them when they fade, that trailing off can reveal the stillness that's present to those conditions. Which is, to close, really the, the functional instructions, the reason why the, the instructions are what they are, at least in the Buddhist teaching, is that by understanding these challenges, we allow ourselves to experience samadhi and stillness. Failure to understand the hindrances leads to a failure to understand stillness. So if we, if, and, the, and the reason why stillness is essential is that it's when the mind is quiet. But I, the joke I share with Terry was, is like, when the mind is no longer under the influence of thinking, not drinking, but thinking, the mind does get drunk with thought, but when the mind's no longer under the influence of these kinds of thoughts, they may have those thoughts, but it's not under the influence of them. That's when the, the, the prior stillness of awareness reveals itself. And that's when a deep experiential new way of understanding experience starts to, starts to dawn. So we work with the hindrances we, out of compassion for ourselves, bring compassion to these energies and really allow them to free themselves within our mind just by watching. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. I hope the reflections uh, open up some exploration for you in your own practice. I hope the questions I raise stimulate curiosity and um, just interest in how uh, the hindrances and the lack of the hindrances arise in your own life, in your own practice, and, and what you can learn from them. So um, if you'd like to practice along, though, uh, if you'd like to join me and Terry, 
and receive support for your practice in, in, in you know, a way like a coach would help uh, provide accountability, consistency, and those kinds of things. If you like that, if you like accountability and consistency in your practice and support and inspiration, please do consider joining us in the Riverbird Sangha. Uh, memberships, again, are on a sliding fee, and we really welcome you to our growing community of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation practitioners. We've got members from Europe, Asia, North America. We're going to branching out and um, just really excited about the energy that's coming together in this community. So please join the conversation. You can do that uh, by the, following the link in the show notes. And we look forward to practicing with you. And until I see you in the next episode, please keep practicing, stay safe, stay strong, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. All the best. <laughs>